God, we long for something more. We long for more of you. We long for an experience that's beyond anything that we've experienced before. And Lord, as we, we look at what is one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible, uh, we talk about how it's changed my life. I just pray that you would change our lives even more, that you would keep us walking more and more closely with you. We just long to know you, to serve you with our whole hearts for our whole lives. Lord, please guide us. Speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. During this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. It was on this ridge. There was a silhouette, a lone figure there. It was one of those days with a huge storm. I don't know how many of you have seen huge storms. You might get them a little bit more up north, up near Shasta. Do you guys sometimes get big storms up there? Sometimes? <laughs> yeah. We don't get as many of them down further south in California, but I remember when my wife and I were in Michigan that we would go into the bedroom and we had this big window and when there was lightning and thunder outside, it was so much fun to watch the huge storms outside. Well, this was a storm like no other, like no storm that I have experienced before. There was this man standing on the ridge. And as he stood there, there were tons of emotions flooding through him. I imagine at that point he was feeling extremely tired. Imagine at that point that he was feeling extremely excited because God was doing phenomenal things. Imagine at that point he was also feeling this intense earnestness that God would do something more. As Joshua stood there on the ridge, he was looking down at the Midianites who God had brought this storm and was doing one of the greatest miracles in the entire Bible, but yet he was not satisfied. Let's look at this story really fast in Joshua chapter 10. Joshua was the one chosen by Moses to bring the children of Israel into the land of Canaan. He was the, uh, the young follower of, of Moses. In Joshua chapter 10, we, we see him with his his, uh, his people facing the biggest challenge that they faced so far. So in the, the previous chapter, we had the Gibeonites who made this league with the Israelites by lying to them, but they honor that league that they had made. And so in verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them they, that they feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. So here's this mighty city that is in league with the, the Israelites, and they're feeling really nervous about this. Therefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Pyram, king of Jermuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Devir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. So these five kings gather their five armies together, and they are going to crush out Gibeah. And as they go to do this, Gibeah sends a frantic message to Joshua saying, we need your help. Please come help us. And so Joshua, rather than just immediately responding, he prays about it, and he gets this message from, from God saying, in, let's see, verse 8, it says, 
And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. This gives this incredible promise that not one of these people will stand before him. Now the previous verse tells us what he did next. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. Now this path from Gilgal to Gibeah was 16 and a half miles, and it was uphill the entire way. Have any of you ever gone on a 16 and a half mile hike? Yeah? The uphill the whole way? Maybe not. <laughs> Halfway, right? That's the way it usually goes. The whole way was an ascent, and then it says this, verse 9. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. This was an all-night, 16-and-a-half-mile march to get to Gibeah to help out their new uh, colleagues there. So they get there. They have to be exhausted at that point, but immediately they go into battle. They begin to fight against these five kings. And verse 10 tells us, So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Ezekiah and Makeda. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Now, first of all, as we read this, we have to remember that in Genesis 15, God had said, you are going to become, to Abraham, your people are going to become slaves in, in Israel for 400 years because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So when we see God pouring out judgment on people, their iniquity is finally complete. They've finally totally rejected God, and their existence has become harmful to the planet. So we see this destruction happening. Now, Gibeon is this city that was this massive fortress city that, that was really important for the whole land of Canaan because it had the access to these passes, and one of those was the the pass of Beth Horon. And this pass is the one that they chased the army up. Beth Horon was a, another six and a half miles up this pass. It's another 2,000 feet in elevation gain. So by the time they get to the top of this pass, they have been hiking all night long, and now they've been fighting plus hiking up this mountain pass. And they've gone, what, that'd be about 22, 23 miles at this point. Imagine how exhausted you would feel at that point. But imagine how excited you'd feel at that point, because here God is sending hailstones down. He's totally wiping them out. He's fulfilling his promise to you, and you're thinking, God's done exactly what he promised. So if that's me, and I'm standing there on that pass, I would just say, God, thank you. I'm going to go home now and get some sleep. But Joshua doesn't do that. Joshua is there on this pass, and as he looks out, he sees that the sun is about to go down in the sky. And he sees that, that, that the Amorites, there are still Amorites who have not yet been destroyed. And as he looks out and he remembers the promise of God that he has, that not one man will stand before him, he does the most audacious thing, I think, in the entire Bible. Look at the next verse, verse 12. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in that day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites. I love how it just says that. He spoke to the Lord. Like he's telling God, this is the deal. 
spoke to the Lord in the day when the, the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar, so the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and did not hasten to go down for about a, a whole day? And there has been no day like it, before it or after, that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. What gives a person the audacity to pray a prayer like that? To, to say to the sun, I mean, imagine you're doing your yard work on Friday. It's getting close to sundown, and you're looking at the sun, and you're thinking, I just don't have enough time to get all that I want done. So, sun, stand still. That'd be a pretty crazy prayer to pray, wouldn't it? Seems really crazy. And if you think about it, at a bare minimum, what would have had to happen, this is probably the biggest physical miracle in the entire Bible. Because... In order for this to take place, a bare minimum, the earth had to stop spinning. So I was reading on the NASA website. If the earth stopped spinning, the atmosphere would still be spinning, and it spins at 1,000 miles per hour, and the whole earth is spinning at 1,000 miles per hour. So if the earth suddenly stopped rotating, there would be 1,000 mile per hour winds that would, you imagine what a hurricane's like, it's nowhere near 1,000 mile per hour winds. It would immediately shear everything off the planet and make it just a round ball. You would have to have the moon be held in its place from its orbit around the earth. You'd have to, huge miracle, like beyond anything that we can really comprehend physically is taking place. He stops the atmosphere, he stops the moon, he stops all of these things in place for 24 hours. Because one man needed more time for his army. He didn't have enough time to get the job done, and he said, God, you promised I'd get the job done. It's not getting done, so I need more time. Stop the sun. Stop the moon in its place. What gave Joshua the audacity to pray a prayer like that, to have that close of a connection with Jesus, that he knew that Jesus would do whatever it took to do what he's asking for? I want to have that kind of faith. I want to know Jesus like that. And sometimes when we read in the Bible, we see stories like this, and it's like somebody just pops up on the scene, and they have this amazing experience, and we think, well, maybe someday that'll happen with me. But I want to know, what is it that led Joshua up to this place? I remember it was one of the first minister's meetings that I was at in Central California. We were up at Leone Meadows, and it was after one of the evening meetings. And as we were sitting there, as I looked around the room, I just felt out of place. I was young in ministry. There was a lot of, like at that time, kind of famous pastors in our conference. There was Jeffrey Rosario was there. And, David Ashrick were there, and just a bunch of people were talking and interacting and stuff. And as I, I sat there, I just said, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing here. I don't have anybody that I felt like I really connected with to talk to. I didn't feel like I had any friends there that were that close to friends at that point. So I picked up my Bible, and I kept reading. I was just reading straight through the Bible that year. It was the beginning of the year, and I had started just reading in Genesis. And I picked up the Bible, and I kept reading, and I ran upon a verse that radically changed my life. And I realized the key to everything in my life. So go with me to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, and we're going to look at a story that reveals, I believe, 
where Joshua got that kind of faith, that he knew Jesus that well, walked that closely with Jesus, that he was able to pray a prayer like that, sun stands still. And you think about the problems you face in life, how much easier are they to solve than a sun standing still? How much more can God do that when we have this type of faith? So what was it in the life of Joshua? Josh, uh, Exodus chapter 33, verse 7 this is after the golden calf. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp. Where did he pitch the tent? Outside the camp. And he called it the tabernacle. Oh, oh sorry, we missed one line. Far from the camp. So where is this, this tent pitched? It's outside the camp. And then it emphasizes that it's far outside of the camp. So here you have the tent, right? And over here you have the camp of Israel. And it's, it's a long ways out there to that tent. So it was whenever, oh, we skipped another part of it, right? And he called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who, what does it say? Sought the Lord, went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now, when it says sought the Lord, it's a, a word that's intensive in the Hebrew, the, the form of the verb there. He could have used a simpler verb there, but instead he uses one that's really intensive for example, it's used in, I believe it's 1 Samuel 19, where Saul is trying to kill David. Saul is seeking David's life. You think about the intensity that he had in that search. He was willing to pin his own son to the wall with a javelin in order to get to David's life. He was willing to hunt him down in the wilderness. He was willing to do whatever it takes. He, he, he killed all of the priests because he was trying to get to David. He was willing to do whatever it took to get there. And Moses takes this tent. He pitches it far outside of the camp of Israel. And that's the place where people go to seek the Lord. A seeking that's an intense seeking. A seeking that's not letting anything get between them and God. So it goes on. Verse 3. So it was whenever Moses went out to the... Verse 8, sorry. Went out to the tabernacle that all the people rose and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass, when Moses entered the tabernacle, that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord talked with Moses. Beautiful picture of God's presence in Moses' life. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped each man in the tent, in his tent door. Beautiful picture of this you know, you had about two million Israelites out there in the wilderness, and this huge church service would take place when Moses would go out, the presence of God would come down, and everybody would go to their tent door, and they would worship God. Beautiful picture. All the people saw the pillar of clouds standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. Verse 11, So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. A beautiful verse, right? And we usually stop reading it right there. We think about that Moses spoke with God face to face. He had this close friendship as if God was right there and he was able to talk with him. But I've usually stopped right there and not read the rest of the verse. But that night when I was there going through that, just wondering and questioning, and really it was probably my own pride, I read the rest of the verse. And it's changed my life. It goes on to say this and he would return to the camp. So Moses goes back to the camp. And when Moses would go back to the camp, I imagine everybody else went back about their business. They went back to tending their fires and cooking their food. They went back to everything that you had to do when you're camping. 
You know, it's difficult to get everything done while you're camping. Some of you are camping here. Then it goes on to say this, But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. So where's Joshua? Joshua is in the, the tabernacle that's far outside the camp, right? He is in that tabernacle. What did you go to that tabernacle to do? To seek the Lord with intensity of heart, to earnestly seek God. And Joshua doesn't leave. He stays in the tent in the presence of God. He's just a young man, it tells us here. He's just the servant of Moses, a young man. Nobody special, but he's determined to keep on seeking the presence of God, to stay in the presence of God, to be with God. And then we fast forward and we find a man who's willing to stand on a mountain and say, sun, stand still, and moon, stand still. It wasn't like that was a momentary decision and just one day he woke up and said, I'm going to just say this. He knew God at that point. He had had this experience with God. And we get a little glimpse of this at the beginning of Joshua when Moses appears to him. And, I mean, not when Moses appears to him, but after Moses has died, God comes to him and says, just as I've been with Moses, I'm going to be with you. No man is going to be able to stand before you. But then he goes on to say, don't be afraid and, and make sure that you meditate on my law day and night. Don't let it depart from your mouth, for then you will have success, and then you will make your way prosperous. You know, there's some amazing answers to prayer in the Bible. Maybe you've heard the one before about George Mueller, where he walks into his orphanage one morning, and there's all the tables are set. Every child is sitting in his orphanage, and they're sitting there at the table, and there's no food. Cupboards are empty, the pantry's empty, and there's absolutely no food anywhere in the cafeteria. And as George Mueller enters, he tells all the children, Children, rise for prayer. And they all rise for prayer, and they must have been thinking, This guy is crazy. There's no food here. But then he bowed his head and he said, Lord, for the food which we are about to eat, we thank you. And no sooner had he said amen, and there was a knock at the door, <laughs> and it was the milkman, I forget which was first. Maybe it was, a, it was the baker first, I think, who had been woken up in the middle of the night, and he had two trays full of bread, and he said, I just was impressed that you guys needed bread. Do you, can, can you take this bread? Can you use it? George Miller said, of course, bring it on in. And then the milkman came and knocked at the door said, my cart just broke out in front of your orphanage and all the milk's going to spoil. Could you possibly use fresh milk this morning? That's a man who has an audacity to pray, right? But here's the thing. George Mueller was a person who he didn't just go on that journey just because he wanted to, but he actually went on that journey because he was a pastor and he would go around to people's houses and he would find these people who were so burdened because they were spending so much time at work. They would have to work 14-hour days in a factory and they could barely take care of their family. And he would try to tell them about the love of Jesus and experiencing God and how wonderful it was. And they would say, we don't have any time for that. We have no time for God. We're barely able to make ends meet as it is. And so he went on this journey to, to show that God would provide for their needs when they put 
God first in their lives. And George Mueller was somebody who, he, by the end of his life, he had read the Bible through, they say, like 200 or 300 times. He would read it through two to three times every year, just constantly reading through the Bible. He meditated on God's Word day and night, and that assurance of who God is through the Word, through knowing God, gave him the audacity to pray prayers like, Lord, thank you for the food that we're about to eat. And Lord, we don't have any money for the orphanage right now. And there were some, you know, thousands of orphans were taken care of. Millions of dollars were brought in over the time of his ministry through radical faith in God. But that was built on a day-to-day basis as he spent time in the Word of God. We see the same thing with Joshua. Joshua goes up on that ridge and he prays that prayer because he knew God for himself. He'd spent time in the tent. He refused to leave the tent. And I love how it describes this in the book, Patriarchs and Prophets. It says, the secret of success is the union of divine power with human effort. Joshua had done a lot of human effort on that day. He had totally thrown himself into this battle. It says, those who achieve the greatest results are those who rely most implicitly Upon the almighty arm. The man who commanded, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ajalon, is the man who for, how long? For hours lay prostrate upon the earth in prayer in the camp at Gilgal. The men of prayer are the men of power. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 509. The men of prayer are the men of power. Joshua was able to to say what he did, not because in that moment he had a powerful prayer to pray and he prayed all the right words, but because he had a close friendship with the God of the universe through much time spent with him, hours spent with him. And you think about it. He's there in the camp. He knows that they're going to go to war. And he spends hours in prayer. I mean, shouldn't he be they're sharpening the swords and sharpening the spears and figuring out the battle plan. You imagine some of his men might have been like, Joshua, aren't you a little distracted from the things that really matter? It wasn't that he wasn't active. It wasn't that he didn't go into battle. But first, he took the time to be with God. He took the time in the Word. He took the time in prayer. And then he was able to do radical things. But You know, we read a story like this and we think, well, that's great for Joshua. He had huge battles to fight for God. But me? I don't have that same kind of thing that I'm facing in my life. But it goes on to say this in the same page in Patriarchs and Prophets. We are told of a greater battle to take place in the closing scenes of earth's history when Jehovah has opened his armory and has brought forward the weapons of his indignation. If we are facing a greater battle... Could it be that God is looking for Joshua's to stand up today? Joshua's who won't depart from the tent, who will not leave until they know that they're having communion with God, until they know that they know God for themselves, who refuse to settle for less than an intimate relationship with Jesus. I believe God's looking for Joshua's to stand up today. Because we are facing a greater battle than ever. I love the story that... Ellen White tells in Gospel Workers, she says, God's messengers must tarry long with him if they would have success in their work. The story is told of an old Lancashire woman who was listening to the reasons that her neighbors gave for their minister's success. 
They spoke of his gifts, of his style of address, of his manners. Nay, said the old woman, I will tell you what it is. Your man is very thick with the Almighty. That's the source of power for your man. He knows God for himself. It's not his manner of address. It's not his gifts. It's the connection that he has with the almighty king of the universe. Gospel Workers, page 255. It continues to say, When men are as devoted as Elijah was and possess the faith that he had, God will reveal himself as he did then. When men plead with the Lord as did Jacob, the results that were seen then will again be seen. Power will come from God in answer to the prayer of faith. God's wanting to do those same things today. He's wanting for the sun to stand still in your life. He's wanting for you to be able to handle the difficulties of your life as you, like we talked about last session, radically depend upon Him, remembering that He loves you, that He's holding you in His arms. And that takes taking this time alone with God. It takes spending time with God. And a lot of times we think, man, I just don't have time to spend time alone with God. You know, I just, my day is so busy. I have so much going on in my life. But there's a person who had far more things to do, I think, than any of us. That's a, a story in Christian history, and that is Martin Luther. I don't know if you've ever read about Martin Luther, the type of person that he was, but you know, so much of what we have today as Protestants is due to the writings that he did, the preaching that he did. Um, it's amazing. There's a, a guy by the name of John Piper who was writing about uh, Martin Luther and some of his accomplishments. You see, he was, I think he was the, um, he wasn't the pastor of the Wittenberg Church, and yet he preached about 3,000 sermons in his lifetime. He was, um, you know, because back then they would have church, they'd meet at 5 a.m., and they'd have a, a beginning of their service. Then they'd have a 10 a.m. services on Sunday. Then they'd meet again in the afternoon. You know, one would be on the Gospels, one would be on the Psalms. And then they'd have an evening service. And then throughout the week, they'd have evening services. So the pastor couldn't cover all of that, so he would do quite a bit of preaching there. But John Piper goes on to say about him that his job as a Bible professor at the University of Wittenberg was full-time work of its own, beyond just the preaching that he did at the church there. He wrote theological treaties by the score, biblical, homiletical, liturgical, educational, devotional, political, some of which have shaped Protestant church life for centuries. So he's writing all of this on top of preaching over 100 sermons a year on average. All the while, he was translating the whole of scriptures into German, a language that he helped to shape by that very translation. He's translating the Bible into German. He carried on a voluminous correspondence, for he was constantly asked for advice and counsel. Travel, meetings, conferences, and colloquies were the order of the day. All the while, he was preaching regularly to a congregation that he must have regarded as a showcase of the Reformation. This guy was busy, right? But this guy had an incredible faith in God. In the, um, the book by Diabne, History of the Great Reformation, it says... It, it recounts the story where Luther is writing to Melanchthon. This is when Melanchthon is in the midst of having to represent the Protestant faith because they've denied Luther from being able to go to the Augsburg uh, experience. So Luther was somebody who 
the emperor had actually given permission for anybody to kill Luther on the spot. Not only had he been excommunicated from the church, but they had said, if, if you kill Martin Luther, then it's like you've killed a wild boar. You've done us a favor. He was somebody who, I mean, the princes were still defending him. That's why he was able to be in Wittenberg. But everybody else was out to hunt him. He could walk down the street and somebody stab him. And they would be seen as doing a favor for God. That's the type of stuff he was going through. And he writes to his friend, Melanchthon, who's also experiencing some persecution. And this is what he says to him. Grace and peace in Christ. In Christ, I say, and not in the world. Amen. I hate with exceeding hatred those extreme cares which consume you. I hate that stuff that fills you with anxiety, right? Like we talked about last session. I, I hate the fact that you're, you're filled with all of this anxiety in your life. If the cause is unjust, then abandon it. If the cause is just, why should we belie the promises of him who commands us to sleep without fear? We can trust that God will finish his work. We've read the end of the book. We know what's coming. God lets us be a part of his work but he doesn't have to have us as a part of his work. Christ will not be wanting to the work of justice and truth. He lives, he reigns. What fear then can we have? What fear? How about being stabbed, Martin Luther? What about, what about getting chased down by the armies of the Pope? You have so many things to be afraid of, and yet he's telling Melanchthon, I hate it that you're so anxious. Just trust in God. Just let him take care of all the stuff in your life because he cares for you. Ellen White in the book Great Controversy further depicts what Martin Luther's secret of power was. It says, from the secret place of prayer came the power that shook the world in the Great Reformation. There with holy calmness the servants of the Lord set their feet upon the rock of his promises. During the struggle at Augsburg, Luther did not pass a day without devoting three hours at least to prayer. And they were hours selected from those most favorable to study. Three hours a day devoted to prayer at a time when what he needed to do was to, to write all of these things out for Melanchthon to be able to go to Augsburg and to be able to defend the entire Protestant Reformation. The Reformation that changed the whole world. If it wasn't for the Protestant Reformation, we in America wouldn't be enjoying the freedoms that we enjoy. And we as Seventh-day Adventists recognize just the importance of so many things from the Reformation. Where did the power come from that shook the world in the Great Reformation? It came from the secret place of prayer. The same place that Joshua found it is the same place that Martin Luther found it. goes on to, to recount his prayer times. It's interesting that the secretary actually came and there's a story about how he snuck up next to the door of the room where Martin Luther was, and he held his breath so Martin Luther wouldn't hear him, and he, he recounted what it was that Martin Luther was praying. Because in the privacy of his chamber, he was heard to pour out his soul before God in words of, full of adoration, fear, and hope, as when one speaks to a friend. Remember Exodus 33:11? Moses spoke to God like one speaks to a friend. Martin Luther knew what that was like, because he had spent hours in the presence of God. I know that thou art our Father and our God, he said, and that thou wilt scatter the persecutors of thy children. For thou art thyself endangered with us, 
All this matter is thine, and it is only by thy constraint that we have put our hands to it. Defend us then, O Father. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? It's a prayer of faith, a prayer of somebody who knew that God was God is back, that God was with him, and that he really could depend upon God. But that prayer comes through much time in prayer, much time in the presence of God. I remember I moved back to Andrews to the seminary in 2010. I'd done ministry for two years at that point. And as I moved back, I was excited about some of the stuff that I was going to be learning there. And I thought, you know, this will probably be a good experience. I'm probably going to grow some from the classes. And the classes were phenomenal. I learned a lot there. Gave me a deeper foundation, a deeper appreciation for the, the truths that we hold dear as a Seventh-day Adventist church. But there was a bigger thing that happened in my life. One of the first classes was a class on biblical spirituality. And as we went to that class, they assigned us a prayer partner. And they assigned us to once a week meet together, to pray together. And as I began to meet with my prayer partner and pray, and we specifically were to ask each other questions about how our walk with Jesus was going. We were just practically challenging each other, saying, so how, over the past week, how have you grown with Jesus? In, in what ways are you closer to God now than you were before? What challenges did you have in your walk with God? What goals do you have for the coming week? And so this kind of like forced us to begin to think, well, we better learn how to grow in our walk with Jesus, not just stay stagnant in our walk with Jesus. We need to set goals, to set priorities, to figure out how to block out more time in our lives. And I read some of these quotes from Great Controversy, and I read some things um, from Ian Bounds. He has this portion where he talks about the great men of prayer and the hours that they would spend in prayer. And I thought, you know what? That's the most important thing that I could do to prepare myself for ministry. You know, I could study and study and study, but there are people who know so much who don't even believe in God. Or you sometimes read commentaries from, from people who know the Bible, they know the Hebrew, they know all that stuff so well, and yet they don't even believe that God exists. So, just studying isn't going to cut it for me. I need to study. I need to immerse myself in the Word. But I need something more than that. And so began to, to ask God to do something more for me. Now, I wasn't a morning person at the time. I didn't really like to wake up. I remember that they were starting that GC initiative of praying at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., and I was like, why did they have to set it at 7 a.m.? That's early. <laughs> I don't know that everybody's up at that time. Well, as time progressed, I began to pray um, that God would open the door for me to spend more time with him. And my family um, had started doing this before me. My parents, I grew up hearing them pray this prayer. So Isaiah 50, verse 4, says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I may know how to sustain a weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as a disciple. He awakens me morning by morning. And my parents literally would pray this prayer and not use an alarm clock. And so as a teenager, I thought, they're crazy. <laughs> I don't, maybe they just think about it enough or they're so used to waking up at that time, but I, I don't buy it. Then I met Leah. And Leah was really good friends with my mom, and she was praying the same prayer. And God was waking her up every morning. And as we got closer, finally, I began to say, you know what? I need to start praying this prayer. 
As I began to pray that prayer, God began to do it. And let me tell you, when you claim this promise, I literally claim it every single night. I just say, God, would you wake me up tomorrow morning? And it is so peaceful to not have to wake up to, you know how it is if you have a ringtone on your phone, and you've woken up to that ringtone, you're like, I better change this because I hate hearing that sound now, and you have to change to another one, and eventually any sound gets annoying that wakes you up. But when you pray this prayer, and God wakes you up, you're ready to be up. You're ready to, to experience Him. You, you have a, an excitement to spend time with a God that you love. And so just started praying that prayer, and I don't know, maybe some of you pray that, but it can be really early in the morning sometimes. I mean, sometimes he'll wake you up and you think, this couldn't possibly be right, God. <laughs> I'm going to be so exhausted today. But if he can stop the sun in the sky and the moon, how much more can he sustain you throughout a night of prayer? How much more can he give you energy through the word? If man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, he can give you energy and strength through his word. So that's just something practical that's really helped me to pray that every day. But there as I was there at the seminary, began to pray that prayer. God was waking me up in the morning, spending more time, and I just said, you know what? I'm going to start blocking out this time, and I want to spend at least this amount of hours. If Martin Luther spent that amount of time, then surely he would call me to, to spend that amount of time too. And then I remember partway in, Dwight Nelson was speaking in Pioneer Memorial Church, and we were there, and he was saying, I don't care how much time you're spending with God, but I want you to double it. And that was a summer when I had the most credits. I was overloading that summer so that we could get done sooner. I was paying to have extra credits. And actually, God worked it out, so I didn't have to pay, but I was doing extra credits. And I thought, that's not possible. If I double three hours, that just that's illogical. It doesn't work. But I can tell you that that summer, as I said, OK, I'm going to do what he's, what he's appealing for, and I God accomplished all those things that way. That, that, it, it was phenomenal. So there's this, this quote um, that, where Ellen White says, Our High Calling, page 116, This course of action may seem impossible to the human mind. I have not time, you may say. But when you consider the matter as it really is, you lose no time. We really have faith. We recognize that we, we lose no time when we're with God. For when you secure the power and grace that come alone from God, you do not accomplish the work. It is Jesus who is the real worker. Without me, says Christ, you can do nothing. Not a moment is wasted in his presence. That doesn't mean that we go and become monks and we don't actively share with the world the love of Jesus. But spending time with Jesus has to be point A of that. That's how the Pharisees were able to or the council was able to look at Peter and say, we can tell you've been with Jesus, right? They knew that he had spent time with Jesus, and that changed things. And I remember during that year that what I thought was going to take place was, you know, I would begin to preach these powerful sermons, and, and I would have power to heal people. And, you know, you begin to think, well, the more time I spend with God, it's just going to be this amazing, euphoric experience. But you know what I began to find? Jesus began to just point out little corners in my heart. You know how you treat your wife? That's really not very nice. <laughs> so, oh, you're right. Well, that kind of hurts, but, you know, I should let that go. You know how you're eating this, and it's 
really sapping your energy and you want to spend time with me, but you have no strength and no energy for it, maybe you should cut that out. Not just so that you can somehow live longer, I'm coming soon, <laughs> but so that you have more energy to spend time with me, so you have more energy to work with me, work for me. And God began to radically transform so many areas of my life. And one of them was diet, where I literally, I, I could have put up a picture of when I was a little kid. I loved cookies, pizza, McDonald's, egg and cheese biscuits, hold the, hold the bacon. Like, I loved anything that was really unhealthy, donuts, anything like that. And I hated vegetables. When I was a little kid, my mom would serve broccoli, and I would plug my nose. And there's this restaurant, I don't know if you've been to it in Santa Cruz, called Dharma's. We would go to Dharma's, and thankfully they had this broad menu where I would order, you know, like pesto pasta or something like that. And my parents, well, I guess my mom, she would order like this salad and then this vegetable stir fry. And I'd tell her, Mom, how could you waste all that money on a meal that's prepared for us that is not good at all? So I was there at the seminary, and I began to just pray, God, you know how twisted my taste buds are. <laughs> you know that I don't even like healthy food. I absolutely despise vegetables. I just began to pray, Lord, would you change me? And it wasn't an overnight experience, but I can tell you that today, I love broccoli. I love vegetables. I love all those things, and I believe that God is able to change every area of our life as we simply come to Him and allow Him to work transformation in our hearts. It happens faster for some than for others, but as we just keep building that relationship with Him, He wants to change every area of our life. He wants to make a huge difference in our life. He wants for us to have that passion to pursue Him with all of our hearts. In the book Education, page 260, it says, An intensity such as never before was seen is taking possession of the world and amusement and money-making and the contest for power and the very struggle for existence. There is a terrible force that engrosses body and mind and soul. In the midst of the maddening rush, God is speaking. Josh and I were just talking about how fast technology is advancing. You know, everything is just bombarding us. Sean was talking about last night how you have all this background noise in your mind. The devil is purposefully doing as much as possible to engross every part of our mind, every part of our body to distract us. And it goes on to say, God is speaking. He bids us come apart and commune with him. Be still and know that I am God. Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I'm God. It goes back to what Enoch experienced. Just recognize that I am and that I am a rewarder of those who diligently seek, you, seek me. Recognize that I want to just be your loving Father that holds you in His arms. goes on to say, May, Many, even in their seasons of devotion, fail of receiving the blessing of real communion with God. Not a pause for a moment in His presence, but personal contact with Christ. To sit down in companionship with Him. This is our need. Education, page 260 and 261. That's our need, to sit down in companionship, to really know Jesus. And it's going to change absolutely every area of our life. And it's a joyful thing. It comes through delighting ourselves in the Lord. Like Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. I wouldn't trade anything for getting to spend time with God. 
honestly, it's become the greatest delight of my life. I remember it used to be hard to pick up the Bible and to read through, and I'm like, well, this is what I got to do. And I remember to take time in prayer. It used to be a really hard thing, and it still can be. There's so many distractions, you know, going on. Which, just a side note, something really practical that can be helpful when, when you're praying and you have those thoughts in your mind about, wait, I need to get this done, I need to get that done, I need to get this done. You either have there on your phone or, or a notepad a to-do list. And as soon as that thing pops in your mind, write it down, and then you can totally forget about it. You can leave it, and then you can put your mind back on what matters. If you are able to push those thoughts, and you know that it's taken care of, and then you don't have to keep thinking about it, because otherwise, you'll go on praying, and then you're like, wait, 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 but I have to make sure that I remember to do this. Martin Luther has some amazing things that he's written about prayer. There's one uh, article where he talks about the Lord's Prayer and how to just practically go through the Lord's Prayer and really expand it and to pray it in a really meaningful way. He talks about the value of praying out loud so that you're actually, your thoughts are following because you're, you're speaking out loud. He says that he, he would either kneel or he'd stand and he'd pray the Lord's Prayer and he would you know, just take it line by line, our Father, and he would just think about God as his Father and pray to, to God as his Father and pray along that topic, which, which art in heaven. And he'd talk to God about heaven and he'd just go through it step by step, line by line. For me, it's such a valuable thing because I remember this January, actually, we were going through a, a difficult time, my wife and I, and some things that were going on in our community. And just all these thoughts were racing through my mind. I don't know if you've gone through you know, some really difficult times in your life where it's like you can't focus on anything but that problem. And I remember like one morning, God woke me up really early in the morning and I was trying to pray, I was trying to talk to him, and I just couldn't. I could not focus on God at that point. And I said, God, you got to help me. What do I do? And I just felt impressed. Well, just open your Bible and begin to pray through Scripture. Something simple and yet something so transformational. And I just picked up Psalm chapter 31 I was at at that point in time. And I began to read it. It says, In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. That's exactly what I needed at that point. I'm going through a time where I felt like I need deliverance. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. There were some accusations going on and different things, and I, I really felt like God was telling me, I'm going to defend. Don't worry. I'll take care of the church. You don't have to worry. I'm the defender of the church. You don't have to be there to make sure that things don't fall apart. I'll take care of it for you. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. And on and on it goes, just promise after promise, exactly what I needed. And that was able to just focus my mind on what really mattered at that point. To focus on praying about things that really mattered. I believe God has such a deeper, more intimate experience for us. I believe that he wants to take us deeper and deeper with him. I think that he's calling for Joshua to stand up today and say, I'm not leaving that tent. I'm not leaving that tent. I will not depart from your presence. But I'm staying there. And like Jacob, I'm wrestling. And I will not let you go until you bless me. And then, when we're in that moment of crisis and we're standing there on the ridge and 
we don't know if we have enough time. It doesn't matter if you don't have enough time or whatever it is that you're facing. You serve the God of the universe who can stop the sun in its place, who can say to the moon, stand still for a day. God wants to do incredible things in our lives and our family's life in answer to prayer. Uh, any thoughts or things you'd like to add to that or questions that you guys have? Any experiences or things that have helped you in your time alone with God that might be helpful for, for other people, that the practical experiences that you've had? We don't have to share it this time if you don't. Joshua, you have one? One little tip. You know, we all have the, the Bible on our phones. Mm -hmm. It can be a real distraction. Yeah. It, it's a good thing to have when, so we have it on the Bible. But at the morning worship, there's such a temptation to check your emails. You know, mm -hmm. so, all those temptations are so readily available. The notifications pop in up all over the place. I, I found that I need a piece of paper that does not, you know. Doesn't that, talk back you know, to you. Yeah. The Bible or through the prophecy notebook, mm -hmm. very low tech, yeah. can, can help with distractions if we're struggling with distractions. That's very true, yeah. I still use electronics, but what I tend to do is the first page, I've taken all the apps off of it, besides my Bible, Ellen White's writings, and the, a notepad thing. And then I'll also usually hit, there's, um, what is it, like do not disturb, so that none of the notifications come through. And it's still... It's still very easy to get distracted, so I think it really is better for just paper. But I think there are ways, too, that you can utilize those tools, too. Yeah, that's so helpful. Any ways that, whatever it takes, right? <laughs> that's, what it, that's what it's saying for, for Joshua. <laughs> they went out to that tent. They did whatever it took to seek God, doing whatever it takes. That's awesome. Well, let's pray together and just ask that God gives us more of a heart to seek and more of a heart to know him. Father, we really want to know you. We just pray that you would teach us how to know you, how to have an experience with you that's living and active, Lord. We want to speak to you like Moses did as a friend. Um, we want to have the experience of Joshua where we know who you are and we know that your promises you will fulfill in our lives. We want to have the faith of George Mueller that we know we can bless the food that's not there because you've told us to take in the orphans and we know that you'll feed them. We want to have the faith of Martin Luther that even though everybody's trying to kill us, that we could just rest in confidence in you, having no fear because you are our shelter. Lord God, just teach us how to prioritize time with you. Lord, radically transform our hearts and our lives we want what Sean talked about this morning. We want your love to be how people know that we're your disciples. And Lord, I believe that comes by setting, being set on fire by your love and your presence. And I just pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would fill us with a heart to know you, to seek you with our whole heart. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.